Well, uh, this passage, um, it's, a, it's an interesting passage that we're going to look at today, and I'm, I'm praying and I'm hoping as I've, as I've spent time with this that the Lord's going to reveal things to our heart today through this unseemingly insignificant passage, uh, and yet perhaps I believe that God has something for us even in this. Let me just speak a little bit to last week. Last week, we were in the first five verses of chapter 2. We saw uh, Paul explaining his, his second trip to Jerusalem. And this, this does two things, right? It is, it is furthering his defense of his own ministry and his apostleship, that he didn't have enough time uh, to download everything from the apostles and the the two weeks that he was there the first time, and then in the second trip. And so, so he's using this as a defense, but it's also something interesting, just as an aside. It kind of shows Paul saying, hey, I'm not following Jewish tradition. Because under Jewish tradition, every year, obeying the festivals, he would have gone to Jerusalem. And yet, in 14 years, he's only been there twice. So he's making a statement there. Uh, it's also a statement that shows that he really doesn't care what people think about him. And we're going to see that in the passage. The other thing, he says he meets with those who seemed important in the church. Okay, and I want you to notice that word seemed because that's from last week as well, and we're going to see it over and over and over this week. Those who seemed important to the church, those are the people that Paul met with, and he sets before them the gospel that he proclaims among the Gentiles. And he's bringing Barnabas and he's bringing Titus with him as eyewitnesses to his ministry. Okay, this is all stuff we, we looked at last week. Titus, who is, who is Titus? Titus is this uncircumcised Greek uh, believer. Um, and we see that he is not forced or required to be circumcised, even though false brothers have come in and they're trying to compel him to do so, but not openly, right? They're doing it from the shadows, they're going and they're speaking to people who are in, in authority, and they're saying, hey, is this uh, Titus guy, he's not a, he can't be a believer. I mean, he's not even circumcised. You should bring that up in your little meetings with Paul. You see how they, they, they and I'm just kind of speculating here, but that's how I would see them working from the darkness to compel, Bar, uh, to compel Titus to be circumcised. And, and what we see is that Paul defends the truth of the gospel, does not yield in submission to these false brothers, not for a moment, right? He's communicating this to the Galatians uh, in his continued defense of the gospel message and of God's anointing on his life to be a messenger to them. Now, he's been doing that for a while. This is chapter 2. He's still in his defense, but take heart. Some people see this, this message right here, as the end of his defense. He starts to kind of blur a little bit. It's definitely at the end of 2, but he kind of starts to blur a little bit of theology in here. And definitely by chapter 3, we get into the, the theology of what he is saying. How can he say this stuff, okay? So hang in here for a little bit more defense of his ministry and of his gospel. Now, just as an aside... Uh, from your teacher this morning, uh, the Greek here is tricky. Some people say that it's because of Paul's emotion that he is writing in a manner that is, uh, he's dropping things and uh, he's shortening phrases and just not saying them in the typical way. Um, even in the English, though, this is confusing, right? 
I mean, the dude puts so many parenthetical phrases in there, sometimes it's hard to understand what he's talking about because you get lost in, in that little aside comment that he makes here. Um, so it makes this passage difficult to preach. So here's our goal today. Here's our one major goal. Let's figure out what Paul's saying today, all right? That's my goal. And I believe that's going to create our outline because I think he's trying to say two things. And I think he's also trying to teach the Galatians an important spiritual lesson here, okay? So that's what we're going to look at. So uh, from, verse, uh, from verse 6, we're going to see his first point, which is, I didn't go to Jerusalem because I needed or was seeking validation from men. That's what he's going to say here, okay? Now, so we'll uh, turn to you in your Bibles, Galatians 2, verse 6. He says, and, or in the, in the Greek, that is day, which is but. It is an adverse conjunction uh, showing contrast there. So uh, remember, I said we're in the middle of five of these, five of these adverse conjunctions. This one starts, but from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Okay, so what is Paul saying about the influential, and why, does, why is he putting this parenthetical phrase in there? How does that help us? So in the Greek, the word influential there means uh, of the highest character and esteem. Of the highest character and esteem. But he's not saying that these people are of the highest character and esteem. He's saying they seemed to be of the highest character and esteem. And then in the parenthetical phrase, he says, God shows no partiality. Literally, he's saying, God does not accept a face. God does not accept a face. And this is a, this is a Jewish idiom. And it goes back uh, to uh, a passage we're going to look at in 1 Samuel 16, 7, but what it's saying is that God does not accept anyone simply based on the way he looks, okay? And that passage in 1 Samuel uh, 16, 7 says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart now, what's the context of that verse? You guys are familiar with this story, right? Samuel is sent to the house of Jesse to pick a new king for Israel, right? And, and, and Jesse sets a, a table and has this banquet, and then he starts parading his sons one by one in front of Samuel. And, and Samuel's looking at him going, well, this dude's he's pretty, he's pretty good looking. He's kind of tall. He's jacked. He's ready to go. I think he'd make a good king. God says, no, I have rejected him. And Samuel goes, okay, well, next one. He's pretty good looking. Maybe he's the one. I, I just think it's great here that, that you see this interplay between Samuel and his per perception, right? And then God speaking into that perception and bringing correction. Nope, not this one. Gets all the way to the end, Right? God says no to the last one. Samuel goes, Jesse, do you have any other kids? <laughs> yeah, we got one more. He's kind of small and inconsequential, but he's out, he's out in the field watching the sheep. Well, bring him in. Bring him in. And he does. And God 
sees something in David that he says, this is the one. Now, please understand, David is not perfect, okay? I want you to understand that because this is very key. God is not looking for perfection in his man. David sinned greatly, but his heart was after God, which was something that God desired in his choice for a king. His predecessor, King Saul, man, he was the the one that the nation of Israel wanted. They looked to him and they said, man, he's a good-looking king. He looks just like all the kings of all the other nations. That's the one we want. And God rejects him. And instead, he chooses one who would seek him with a heart of repentance. That's it. It's interesting here. And just right here from this story, see the difference about what we want and what we choose and what God wants and what God chooses. There's a big difference. And I think that that's, that's part of the lesson that Paul is trying to teach um, these Galatians. Now, the church hasn't learned this lesson. We haven't. Take it from someone who has interviewed with many churches, many churches. And we, the church does not look different from the world in this. We... They, they look at your resume. They look at your experience. And they put a lot of weight in that. And where the church does hire differently than the world, it's just kind of weird, just to be honest. And this is kind of my little rant here. I, sorry. Um, you know what? I'm not even going to go there. It's not. It's, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. The point is, is that, that, that we, even in the church, have a weakness when we seek a leader, It's because we're limited by what we can see, and we can only see the external. And we we make our our, our initial judgment on things that are superficial, because even education can be superficial. I've been to seminary twice, and I know that it doesn't make you holy. It gives you information, and it trains you, but it doesn't remove sin. You can get a great scholar who doesn't know Jesus or who is a real jerk from seminary. But God has the ability to see inside of a person. God knows our true character. And this is exactly what the the Jewish Christians who oppose Paul are doing. They're coming, and they're coming with this, with the, their, their rank. They're coming with their status. They're coming with their reputation. But their judgment is flawed. And Paul is trying to teach these Galatians the, this truth in the parenthetical. That seeming to be influential does not make you trustworthy or a true brother who pursues the things of God. We must be careful to test our leaders by the fruit that we see in their lives. Paul says, what they were makes no difference to me. I'm not basing my judgment on what they seem to be. He's not concerned with the opinions of men. Take out the parenthetical phrase here, okay? So if we take out the parenthetical phrase, it says, and from those who seemed influential, influential, (laughs) from those who seemed influential, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. What does this mean that they added nothing? nothing to me. Um, It's possible that they gave no further instructions. It's possible that they heard Paul's explanation of the gospel and they 
in debate form, they would have said, they would have added to anything that he omitted. And when he finally finished, there was silence. They didn't have anything to add. There was, there was nothing incomplete about his presentation. But Paul is not looking for their validation of his gospel message or of his ministry to the Gentiles. He already had that validation from God, right? Why would he need any more validating? When I feel insecure and I want validation, I look around me to people who are around me. I look for some kind of sign that, that they are affirming me. And we all want that. These people who seemed influential, who seemed to be pillars, now kind of take on an inconsequential tone. Listen to Doug Wilson. Uh, he explains this point really clearly. He says, Paul has just stated in Galatians 1.6, that even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. What he's saying in that is that the authority of man, whether that's each apostle individually or all of them corporately, does not outrank the authority of the gospel message. Do you get that? That the authority of man is not absolute. Why? Because we fail and we mess things up all the time. Thank you, God, that you have not given us absolute authority because we would mess it up, right? But the authority of the truth of the gospel is absolute because it originates in God who is perfect. However, this doesn't keep men from challenging the authority of God. And next week, we're going to see some men come from Antioch who are disciples of James, and they actually cause Peter to stumble. Okay, this, is, this passage here is really tied to what is happening next week, and I'm going to explain more of that later. In Acts 15.1, we also see another group uh, from Judea, who are teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. So what, is, what, what happens later is that people start coming in groups, right? And let me just say this, simply because you have a lot of people in your corner, or because everyone says, or lots of people have told me, that doesn't make something true, Okay, And yet we're going to see this as they keep pushing the issue. They keep confronting God's authority in the gospel, and they're just gathering people around them. And we do that all the time, especially when we're in conflict. We gather, uh, and who we gather is important too, right? If we could get Vody on our side. Man, if we could just get Doug Wilson to be on our side. Or Paul Washer or Joel Webbin. I'm going to see Joel next week, so... Um, if we could get them on our side, or at least quote them, then you have to agree with me, right? And perhaps that's what happens next week as these disciples of James go to Peter. Man, if we could just get Peter on our side, man, that would really support our opinion. But in a conflict, that only just demonstrates a lack of humility and an unwillingness to listen to what someone else is saying or thinking, Right? My mentor in, in seminary, both times, 20 years apart, and still, 
he's still around to be my mentor, he taught me this phrase. And you should write this down because it's a good phrase. In a conflict, he said, you should always begin with this. You know, you could be right. Tell me more. Now he says, Bart, when you say that, you're not saying that they are right. You're saying that they could be right. He said, but just notice how that diffuses that conflict. You know, you could be right. It slows you down. It doesn't make you defensive, and it allows you to listen. And I went, wow, that's smart. That's pretty smart. I'm going to put that in my back pocket. I'm going to tell other people about that because I think that's good. Uh, just a note uh, before we move on to, this, to the next verse. Um, th- these men from James, these men from Judea, Uh, Simply because they follow someone in authority doesn't grant them a covering that blesses the way that they wrongly follow their their authority, okay? So just just know that. Just because you say you follow somebody doesn't give you some carte blanche kind of way of acting outside of their authority, right? Because we're going to see that James, in a minute, we're going to see James affirms Paul's message, and, 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 and we, when we peer into next week and into Acts 15, um, um, is, is that not all of the followers of James nor all the followers of the church in Judea affirm Paul as their, lead, as their leader or leaders do. So they, they're not following their leaders here just because they are from James. Uh, Doug Wilson uses the quotes John Dewey in, say, it's in saying, Lord, save me from my disciples. So what does it mean? They added nothing to me. It means that Paul, in his defense to the Galatians, isn't telling them this because he needs men's authority to prop up his defense. He doesn't. Paul is called by God to deliver the message to them, and that message he receives straight from God. It is not the invention of any man. Okay, the second point. So he's, first point, hey, I don't need validation. That's what he's saying. I don't need men's validation. Second point that he's saying is, I'm writing to you Galatians because you need to see something. You do need to see that, that human uh, uh, validation, that confirmation that comes from, from human authorities, and that's the way that you're going to be convinced. So here's the evidence. Men of influence in the church have validated me. My, they've validated my mission and my gospel. Okay, so let's look at verse 7. My points this morning are not short. If you need to write those down, check with me later and... I'll give them to you. He says, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Um, so, so let me read that again. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the cir- uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. So what's the spiritual lesson? Okay. I'm just going to give you that. He wants the Galatians to see like these Jews in Jerusalem see. How did they discern that Paul's ministry, how did they discern Paul's ministry in this way? I think that's the lesson that he wants them to learn. That's why he's explaining this. So check out how these people are validating my ministry. Um, The first word in here, on the contrary, is the word Allah, which is a marker of more emphatic contrast. He is saying this emphatically. And here's the emphasis in these set of verses. But when they saw. But when they saw. 
What did they see? What they saw was one, Paul's work and its fruit. They saw the conversion of the Gentiles in Titus. And they, and they also saw the planting of many Christian churches, like the Galatians. And, these, and they discerned that this could only be due to divine grace. Okay? When we decided to, to think about planting in Washington, we didn't, Chris and I had never planted a church before. We'd been in ministry for a very long time. But in this one thing, we were like, why would we ever do that? We don't have a clue about what we are doing or how we will do it. And this verse came up, Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor do so in vain. And we thought, God, we need you. We need you to help us in this because we really don't know what we are doing, right? We need you to produce the fruit. We need you to call people because we don't know anybody. We're just going because you called us to go. The, the other phrase that I want us to, you to see here is they compared uh, Paul's ministry to Peter's. They said, just as Peter, okay? Now, this question comes into my mind. Is there a rivalry between these two ministries or these two ministers? Is there a rivalry between Paul and Peter? Or is this how they saw? Is this <clears throat> how they perceived and discerned? They had seen God's character at work in Peter, and it became clear to them that God was at work in Paul in the same way. Now, what was the work that they compared it to? I believe that this is the fruit of Pentecost. When Peter gets up and he preaches and 3,000 people come, was it Peter? No, it was God who was causing that, right? And they see the similar fruit in Paul's ministry as he goes out to the, to the Gentiles and people come to Christ. And they go, wow, these things. Things seem to be similar here. Verse 8. And this is a parenthetical phrase. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic, there's that word, apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Not only did they see, but they concluded that the gospel of the Gentiles was committed to Paul, which is kind of ironic, right? Think about these two guys. You got Peter, think about Paul. You got Paul, who's been trained under Gamaliel, right? The dude knows the law. He probably has the Old Testament memorized, right? And God sends him to the Gentiles. And then you've got Peter, who's this fisherman who grew up in Galilee of the Gentiles, right? And he sends this guy who doesn't know much about the Old Testament, didn't study under anybody important. He knows how to catch a fish, but does he know how to argue with the Jews? No. And God takes him and he sends him to the Jewish people. Isn't that ironic? Now, this doesn't mean that Paul only works with the Gentiles, because every time we see him entering into a new city, where does he go first? He goes to the synagogue, right? And he reasons with the Jews. He argues with them. He pleads with them, right? And this, we also see that Peter doesn't just go to the Jews. He's called in Acts 9 and 10 to go to the house of Cornelius, right? And share the gospel with these Romans. 
He's also, they're also concluding that Paul is just as worthy of his commission as Peter was. Think about that. He's just as worthy. He's just, he, there's, there's not a difference. There's no difference of levels here. They're both at the same level, right? And, and again, I, I wonder, is there a rivalry? Because they seem to point out this distinction, this difference. And I, I don't have a good question with that. I'm just bring, I don't have a good answer to that. I'm just bringing it up. I, I wonder if they're affirming Peter's past ministry because Paul's current ministry is flourishing. Maybe. Paul uses this parenthetical phrase to explain what they understood, how they were convinced that Paul had the same powerful ministry as Peter. Both of these men had ministries with the obvious fingerprint of God. They could see God working in both of them. Verse 9. Where is verse 9? And when James... Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave me the right hand of fellowship, or they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Okay. Just an interesting side thing, and you might just find this as like some biblical, it might, it might, might get you somewhere in, in Bible trivia or something. Notice the, the order of James, Cephas, and John. Why is it in that order? Okay. I don't know. But here's, here's the interesting thing, right? When you look at the New Testament, you have Acts, right? And then what do you have? Who, who's the author of the next set of books? Paul, right? Very good. Thank you. You win a gold star. Okay. Then who comes next? And you, it goes all the way to Hebrews, right? And then who's after Hebrews. You just look at the list right here in this order. James is next, right? Then who's next? First and second Peter. Then who's next? First, second, third John and Revelation, right? Well, you get Jude in Revelation. Isn't that weird? I don't know if there's any correlation between this order here and how the scriptures are, are put together, but it's just kind of interesting how that worked out. Okay, that aside, that was just, that was for free. Um, Okay, this is what they did, okay? They gave the delegates, they gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship and encouraged Barnabas and Paul to do the gospel work among the Gentile. Now, the right hand of fellowship is a sign of approval. It validates, it confirms the ministry of Paul and his apostleship. And how, does it, how did they, why did they do this? How did they determine that they could validate, that they could confirm it? Well, they, one, determined that grace enables and employs men and women to do work for God, okay? They said that there. They perceive the grace. Paul has been given that grace. And what is the grace? It's the power behind his ministry that produces the fruit of the gospel, okay? What are they, what are they looking for here? They're looking for God at work. And they, they, it's undeniable, okay? Second, they examine Paul's work, which is more important than some ecclesiastical or even apostolic rank. They look to his work. They look to what he did. And three, they looked with eyes informed by what they knew about God, okay? They looked for, for, for qualities like humility in the gospel work. And this and humility is what brings the highest rank. Listen to what James says in James 4, 6, okay? Interesting. He's, he's there. 
He's looking, he's watching Paul, and he says this, but he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, quoting the Old Testament, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is the only rank that we need to be mindful of. Think about that. Humility is the only rank that we need to be mindful of. Paul's ministry was recognized and confirmed by the Jerusalem church, both the apostles and those who seemed influential. The recognition Paul receives was that he had a distinct calling separate from the church in Jerusalem. Now, whether or not Paul and Peter are experiencing rivalry, this right hand of fellowship says there's no struggle over our ministry roles. There's no jealousy. There's no territorial scuffles. It says we're on the same team. We are co-workers. And they shake on it. They offer their hand as a sign. 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, so this is an interesting request. <clears throat> it's, <laughs> it's an interesting request because they say, hey, remember the poor. And I go, guys, did you just, did you just forget why Paul came he came because you guys are in a famine and he's bringing money to you because you're, you need food. And, and so it, it, it seems, it's just ironic to me. It is ironic to me that, they, that they're asking. And maybe you, you might think I'm overreading or reading into this, this call uh, for every Christian to give to the needy. I don't think that I am. Um, if, when I translate this, you can... You can translate it only, they ask us to remember the poor ones or God's poor. Um, and who are the poor people in this story? It's the people in Jerusalem, right? So, so I think what they're saying is only don't forget us. Don't forget. Remember that we, that we ask you to be faithful to the call of mutual help. Remember we're on the same team. Now, should pastors be faithful to the gospel? Uh, and, and meeting the physical needs of those who are in need of assistance? I would say yes, absolutely. I, I think the ministry of helps goes hand in hand with the gospel. It does not replace it, but it goes hand in hand with it, okay? Here it seems that the right hand of fellowship is a request for a commitment of reciprocal aid, which Paul claims he is eager to do. And this is what we should see and experience with other churches. I just, that kind of partnership, right? It's not an attitude of competition, but one of cooperation. It's a desire to build up one another, not tear each other down. Because this, this church, CBC, and all churches belong to Christ. CBC does not belong to Bart. It is not Bart's church, not Bart's church plant. It's not Josh's church, it's not Josh's church plant. This church belongs to Christ and any other pastor who serves in any other church doesn't have the right to claim ownership for the church in which they serve. This, it's this misunderstanding of ownership, right? And the ministry and the place that we have in each other's lives as brothers. So um, let's move to, on to, to talk about how this passage nourishes us today as we read it, Okay. Um, I, I believe it's obvious that Paul beats a drum this week. It's that these people who he's communicating with, they seem to be something. It's three times in today's text and once from last week. 
And why this kind of speaks to us today is, is I believe that we, as people, as humans, we really care about seeming to be something that we're not. It goes to the, the question of how we judge ourselves or how we even judge others. And for me, I get to this conclusion of going, God, man, I need new eyes. I, I mean, I, we as, as a people consciously and unconsciously work really hard in gathering our, uh, in generating our identity or building our reputation from posting positive stuff on social media. Look what I'm eating tonight. Don't you wish you were me? Oh, <laughs> or look at this beautiful sunset. Don't you wish you were me? Uh, to uh, material success how we look at one another, how we judge our, how we're doing in life, how we dress, our physical appearance. Uh, we even, it can motivate us to work out, you know, and to, to improve our physique, you know, because we care what other people think about us and how they see us. Or even trying to lose weight. You might be motivated to lose weight because you care so much about how other people perceive you. Or education. Degrees, and beyond that, writing publications, get your name out there. Somehow that gives you some rank, gives you some kind of reputation. And not all these things are bad. Hear me say that. Not all these things are bad. Don't leave here and say, Bart said, I don't have to care about losing weight. You might need to lose weight, okay? But why? Why are you doing that? Um... But we, we always desire to be something in the eyes of men, okay? And this sets us up for next week. It really does, because this is where Peter falls, right? Or it's not about us. We judge others, and we put them on pedestals because we care about seeming to be... Because, again, we care about seeming to be something in the eyes of man, and it just transfers over to other people, especially Christian leaders, Right? We fanboy at Christian conferences. I'll be there next week. I'll be doing it. Uh, and then we question our faith when they fail. How crazy is that? Why, why would I say that's crazy? It's crazy because men fail. Men are good at failing. It is actually more plausible that they're going to fail than they're going to be perfect. But we might, you know, we might look at some people have YouTube channels and go, you know, if they, if they make a mistake, we're just like, oh, it's falling a false teacher. It's like, no, they mess up. We mess up. Josh and I mess up. And it's not about that. Think back to that story about David. It's not perfection, but watch those leaders and their heart towards God when they fail. Do you see humility? Do you see a heart that, that's sorrowful? over their sin. We see things, we need to see things the way that God sees things. And we need to value what he values. Our, per our perception, our perspective has to change. Do we pursue, our, and are we pursuing that quiet process of godliness? And are we looking for that in others? That's, that's the point. That's what I want you to, to remember, okay? What do I mean by that? Are we being a person of the word? 
a person of truth, a person of conviction, a person with a disposition of grace and forgiveness towards others, especially those people who wrong us. Are we that kind of person? Is that what's coming out of our life? Are are we a person who desires more than anything to glorify God in every word and action and who worships God alone? And all of us have idols in our lives, but more and more are we progressing and, and, and destroying those idols, tearing them down and exalting Christ. And I need that. And then we need... Jesus says, if you want to be great, you be the servant of all. Matthew 20, 26. Shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. It's hard to get a good read on our heart. It is hard. And maybe that's why so many of us just don't pause to ask the question and to have a good awareness of our heart. And maybe it's because we need help with that. The scriptures tell us clearly the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Or Mark 17, 21 through 23. From from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. I want you to hear what Paul says in Romans 12:3, because I think it's an answer for that. For by the grace given to me, I say that everyone among you not think of himself more highly than he ought, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Think with sober judgment about yourself. Think about your heart with sober judgment. And then just to, to conclude, I think we even... <laughs> To answer that question, we need help. We do need help understanding our own heart. So two things. One, no human being knows your heart better than those closest to you. Are you a person who invites other people into the spaces of your life where your heart can be seen? That's what discipleship is all about. And I would encourage you, if you're not, if you're not being discipled by someone. And if, if there's not someone within this body who has their, their finger on your spiritual pulse and can see your heart, you're in a dangerous spot. I would encourage you, man, discipleship is a wonderful way of connecting you to someone else in the body and intentionally growing in the spirit. But even the closest around us can't see the hidden spaces of our hearts. And we do a really good job of disguising them and not letting any kind of light be seen there. So we need the Lord to help us, and we should pray regularly with the psalmist from Psalm 139, 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I don't want to seem righteous. I actually want you to develop that in me. This is especially true when we face conflict with other people. Um, And certainly our church has experienced that in the last uh, week um, or a heightened sense of conflict. It's especially true when we're trying to figure out where the battle lines are. 
as words and accusations fly. And we need to turn our eyes to heaven and to the scriptures and ask the Lord for help. Help us to know our hearts so that we can be obedient to you. That should be our prayer. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, how it instructs us, Lord. We don't want superficiality, Father. We don't want to to continue to wear disguises, Father, but we want to, to look to you and look to one another for help, Lord, so that we might examine our own hearts. God, we don't want to seek the validation of men, Lord. We want to seek the validation of God. And so we're looking to you, we're turning to you, Lord, and we're confessing, Father, that it is so easy for our hearts to look around us. And whether we try and build ourselves up in the eyes of men or or whether we try and put someone on a pedestal, Father, we are doing the wrong thing. Lord, we need to see like you see, and we need to care about what you see. Um, Help us with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.